Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We are in a series in the book of the Bible called Nehemiah. Good job for remembering. Those of you that are coming in or first time to this church, we usually go through sermon series in the books of the Bible. We're in the Old Testament. I'm sure you can start to turn there now. Nehemiah starts, if you're in the, the Bibles in the baskets, it's on page 333, which is easy to remember, the book of Nehemiah. And today we have uh, the privilege of hearing from a guest speaker. I, was, I spend all weekend with the men who are here and so just a, a quick word, if you look around and you see a guy starting to fall asleep during the sermon, there's two things. You could either say, hey, wake up, or you could just let them, you know, dream. They, they, they've had a long weekend. They woke up this morning and it was 29 degrees up there, 29. And so if they, if they fall asleep, you could either tell them to wake up, maybe give them three warnings on the third time, just let them go to sleep. So... Anyways, we do, we have a guest speaker this morning and it's someone from New Life North who has spoken, you said you've spoken here three times already. This is the third time. And he said, well, yeah, whenever, whenever I speak, Joe, me, I'm never here because usually I'm out of town and, and Tim has been speaking. So this is the third time. He probably doesn't need an introduction, but I will introduce him for all of you that, that don't know Tim. He is the pastor of high school and middle school, overseeing the other, other congregations, especially New Life North. And he is someone that I respect very highly. He is a leader of leaders. He's very young. He's in his 20s. And he is someone overseeing a whole department and a staff of people getting young people excited about the Lord. And so we contacted him and his team as we launched our middle school ministry, our hope at New Life Manitou. Uh, we'll, we'll get a game plan. We'll, we'll, we'll put some things to action here soon in the next coming upcoming years. One of the goals is to start a uh, high school ministry. And so it's a, it's a great privilege today to have Tim Shepard preaching to us from the book of Nehemiah. So would you give a new life welcome to Pastor Tim Shepard? Man, oh man, it's good to see all of you. I heard a preacher say one time that if you co-speak somewhere once, you're a guest. If you go twice, you're a friend. And if you make it a third time, you're family. So we're at round three this morning, so you can treat me like I'm Joe. So if I'm terrible, just tell me to be quiet, okay? <laughs> or if you're from the men's retreat, you can go ahead and just go to sleep. Uh, I do feel partially responsible. I'm not gonna lie, like, this weekend felt like the official shift to fall in Colorado, which I take full responsibility, men's retreat, for your misery this weekend, because yesterday I was just praying more, Lord, bring more of this weather. Like, like this feels so nice. Like, I, you could break out the long sleeves, you know? It's like, I've been craving wearing a hoodie for like the past three months. And like this weekend, it was like, finally, like all things are being made new. Um, if you have your Bibles, like Pastor Joe said, we're gonna be in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter two, the second half. If you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, I'm gonna catch you up just briefly. Um, this book, we're in the Old Testament. This is kind of a, a continuation of the book of Ezra. It was written in 446 BC. We have this moment where Israel's been in exile. They're coming, they're kind of coming back to Jerusalem and seeing what's going on. At the beginning of Nehemiah, we have, we have people coming to tell Nehemiah that the, the walls have been torn down around Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah begins to weep and he begins to cry out, which is kind of ironic because Nehemiah has never seen 
his hometown. He was born in exile. He has no context for like, what does Jerusalem look like? And yet he begins to cry out like, Lord, Lord, no, this, this can't be the, the case for, for my place. And so over the last three weeks, uh, Dr. Joe's kind of walked us through kind of three themes of the book of Nehemiah, the first being calling. And what does it mean when we hear the voice of the Lord, we say yes to the voice of the Lord, and then we, we refuse to quit on what God has called us to do. And then week two, he talked about repentance. And what does it look like, not just to like be sorry for, what, for, for our sin or our brokenness, but to actually kind of turn away from the old life into something new. And then last week, he began to kind of enter into like the, the front lines of like spiritual warfare. And like, what does it look like to kind of build up our walls and protect against the enemy. And today I want to talk to you about obedience. Obedience. I think we're going to see something really unique here in the second part of chapter two. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. If you can, will you stand with me? We're going to read these uh, 10 verses, nine, 10 verses, and then we're going to rock and roll from here. Nehemiah chapter two, starting in verse 11, it says, I, I being Nehemiah, he went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, It says, I set out during the night with a few others and I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Verse 13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and I re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Samballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you that your presence is here and among us today. Lord, I thank you that you invite every single one of us into a life of obedience. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to believe that you are who you say you are. Would you reveal yourself to us as our portion today? We love you, we thank you in your precious and holy name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt ill-prepared or ill-equipped for the situation that you found yourself in? 
Much of the men from the men's retreat this weekend, I'm sure, felt that this morning, waking up in 29 degree weather. But a situation in your life where you, you, you entered into something and you realized, I have no idea what I'm doing. Twice this has happened very dramatically in my life. The first was seven years ago when I got married, right? I went in as a 20-year-old. My wife was 18. We were very, very young when we got married. And we were so wide, like, like marriage is awesome. There's nothing but good things in marriage, right? Like that's what you just see. Like all your heroes, they're like married. And so we ended up getting, we, get, we got married June 20th, 2015. And it took like a week and a half for us to realize this isn't all sunshine and rainbows <laughs> and whiskers on kittens. And I remember our first, second, and third year specifically, it was like saturated with like, like these moments where it was just like, we're just so not getting each other. Like, we, I don't understand where you're coming from. You don't understand where I'm coming from. And I remember one of the unique things that marked like our first three years of marriage and like that marked the way I was such a terrible husband is my wife would begin to tell me frustrations that she would have. How, how, how she was angry with somebody and, or, or, or somebody had said something that really like, like really flustered her, a situation that really made her angry. And every time my wife would begin to share her heart of why she was upset or why she was hurt, the like lens that I would listen to it through would be like, you want me to fix the situation? Obviously, that's why you're telling me. It's because you need a solution to your problem. And so she would tell me her problem and I would give her a solution and it would make her mad. I was so confused. I did, I'm like, no, no, you, if, you, if you present a problem, you need a solution. She's like, no, I don't want you to give me a solution. I'm like, then why am I here? Why are you telling me your problem? And we'd argue, argue, argue. And I will never forget, I went to this conference and I was sitting and I was listening to this speaker from New York and he was talking about his own marriage and how he'd been in ministry. And when he was young in ministry, they would, they, would, they would argue because his wife would begin to tell him all of her problems and then he would begin to try to fix it and then it would make her more mad and he didn't understand. So he went and saw a counselor. And he said, the counselor gave him this bit of advice that the next time your wife begins to tell you why she is angry, instead of fixing it, he told him, I want you to get angry with her. And he was so confused. He was like, that makes no sense. The counselor's like, just trust me, give it a try. So he begins to talk about how this works. And so I'm listening to this, and it's not but four days later after the conference, we're sitting in the car driving home. And my wife, she's sitting in the passenger seat, and she just begins to go off about how one of her family members was really making her mad. <laughs> I'll never forget this. We're driving, we're on the home stretch to our house. And she's talking, she's getting really worked up in the front seat, and immediately the solution popped in my mind of what I could tell her to fix it. And right as I was about to open my mouth, it was like the Holy Spirit shut me up. And he said, I want you to just get angry with her. So she begins to talk, and then I got, like, I started getting excited. I was like, this is my moment. This is my moment, my moment, my moment. So like, she hits a pause in her conversation just out of nowhere. I, I go, she said what? Oh my goodness. How dare she? And I'll, never, I'll never forget the one. My wife was like, you see, like she's in the passenger seat, looks over, and I'll never forget it. Like total confusion, then slowly and progressively, this smile and nod. Yes! Yes! Like, right? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. 
one of the best moments in our marriage of like, okay, and nowhere in premarital counseling do they tell you that. Like, hey, when she gets mad, get mad with her. Nobody talks about that. It's like, it's like I, 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 we entered into marriage and it was like ill-equipped. And then I had this moment yet again. We're sitting here now. We just, we, we're in three days. Our, our first little girl will hit four months old, okay? We just had our first baby back in May. And this was like the second like slap from the Lord of like a moment I felt very ill-prepared. And I will never forget, all my parents in the room might know this moment where we're in the car and we're leaving the hospital. And I'm like sitting in the driver's seat and I've never held a steering wheel tighter in my life. <laughs> Child in the back seat, my wife's sitting there. And my wife looks at me and she goes, how do you feel right now? And like, we're, we're pulling out of the hospital and I'm like, I feel like we've just been given like, like a, you know, a test prep book and we're about to take the test and it's just pass or fail, life or death. <laughs> like that's like, like, there's no button at home to call a nurse to come into the room if Haven starts crying. And I remember when everybody told us while Mariah was pregnant, like enjoy your sleep while it lasts, enjoy your sleep while it lasts. And as a young man, I rolled my eyes to it all the time. I was like, dear gosh, you guys are all so dramatic. Like it's not gonna be that big a deal. I'm here to tell you this morning that last night was the first night in four months our child slept through the night and we got a full night's sleep. And I felt ill-equipped, ill-prepared. And here's the thing, most of the time, if not all the time, we are ill-prepared for a situation that we find ourselves in because we don't count the cost. We don't understand really what we're stepping into. And that's kind of the beauty of marriage and parenthood. It's like those are like the two like ultimate things where God goes, you can't really know what you're stepping into. You're gonna have to figure it out as you go, right? And this is, this is kind of a moment that Nehemiah is finding himself in. And actually what's really unique about the second part of Nehemiah chapter two is he's having to count the costs. Why is that the case? I'm gonna give you a very simple three-point sermon in classic Dr. Joe fashion, okay? Why does he need to count the cost? Why? Because point one, obedience is costly. Obedience is costly. And let me, let me show you how he begins to count the cost here. We're gonna go back to verse 13. Verse 13, it says that Nehemiah, by night, he went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. I'm sure that is the most repulsive gate ever. <laughs> Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. So what, what, what's taking place right here is, is Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. He's finally there. He's finally getting to see like what's what in his home city. And so by night, he hasn't told anybody why he's there. Nobody knows his purpose. And so before he's gonna tell his purpose, he's gonna count the cost. He's gonna go out three nights in a row and he's going to examine the wall. And he's gonna go, what needs to be done? What is this really going to entail? And I think that this is, is something really important for many of us to catch because oftentimes this can be like the primary reason why people don't follow Jesus for the long haul. Is, is we have this experience and we enter into to, to following Jesus, and it's like following Jesus is supposed to always be like, 
like sunshine and rainbows and whiskers on kittens, right? That, that's the Christian life, right? Like it's, it's always awesome. It's always going well. And all it takes is for you to follow Jesus for a small bit of time, for you to live life for a small bit of time to realize that that's not the case, right? And Jesus even prepares us for that, right? He looks at his followers and he says like, look, in this world, you will have what? You're gonna have tribulation. It's gonna be hard. Like if you're gonna follow in my footsteps, my footsteps include a cross. Like it's going to be difficult and more often than not, we, you don't count the cost. And this is what happens. This is one of the primary reasons we might cease to be obedient is because something was more costly than we thought it would be. This is why people will bail out on marriage much quicker than they should. Why? Because it was much more costly than they thought it would be. This is why we have so many things happening with the younger generation right now. I mean, I, I, get, to, I get to sit front row to it of, of often parents feel this kind of need to, because they feel ill-equipped to, to, to disciple their children, that they'll just kind of abdicate it to the church. And they'll say, hey, in the same way that my kid will play soccer and the way that my kid will go to school, this will be the place they learn about Jesus when you know that 90% of what a kid walks in is caught, not taught, right? It's gonna be what they see at home, 90% with mom and dad. We don't count the cost. And so what ends up happening is we find the task at hand too overwhelming. And Nehemiah knows in this moment, before I get this started, I need to know what this is going to take. Before I go and I tell the nobles and the officials and the local governors of the providence, like before I do any of that, I need to have a good idea of what this is going to cost, what this is going to take. And scripture is filled with people who understand like what God is going to ask them to do is going to be costly, right? Like we know that. Like, I mean, you go all the way back to Abraham, you go to Noah, you see moments where God says, look, I want you to build a boat. Can you imagine Noah's response? Why? He's like, no, 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 like, I, I want you, I, like, my wrath is about to be poured out upon the earth and I wanna preserve two of every animal, seven of every clean animal, and I want you to build a boat for your family. I'm gonna preserve your family. Like, and think about the ridicule in the life that Noah had to endure by being obedient to the Lord. Abraham leaving his hometown, having to wait so long to get his, his child. And then when he finally gets his child, God asked him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. I mean, think about the cost. If we don't count the cost, oftentimes it's the first thing that hinders our obedience. But that's not the only thing that we see in this text about obedience. It is costly. But the thing is with obedience is that obedience will always be met with opposition, right? There's always going to be something working against what God has asked us to do. Look at verse 19. It says, but when Samballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they what? They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. You are rebelling against the king. So Nehemiah comes, he finally makes his plan known. He's counted the cost. And he looks at his people and he says, this is what we have to do. And they respond with, let's rebuild the wall. And yet, you have all of these people who have kind of a stake in this game. You got all of these people who, are, who kind of have like, a, they, they're thriving, they're flourishing 
off of Jerusalem's deprivation. And so they begin to see that, wait a minute, like what, what Nehemiah and the people of Israel are about to do here is gonna be costly to us. So what, the, what do they begin to do? They begin to mock and they ridicule. And if you continue to read Nehemiah over the course of the next three to four chapters, we actually have like a layer or a progression of opposition that begins to take place. We see it happen here in chapter two, but then in verse four, we see that he gets mocked. We, we see Samballad and, and the, Samballad the Horonite, and we see Tobiah the Ammonite and Gresham. They begin to say like, it's like, like the only definition of like ancient Near East trash talking that you'll see in scripture. And they, they look at him at the beginning of chapter four and they say, yo, if you begin to build this wall, if a fox walks on it, it's just gonna fall over. Nehemiah's like, okay, great. We're gonna keep going. And they, he continues to get mocked. Then you keep going and they begin to conspire against Nehemiah. They begin to go, you know what? We're gonna try to find a way to kill you. We're gonna try to find a way to hinder the progression of this wall being built. Then it kind of shifts to threatening. They begin to issue threats towards Nehemiah. So what Nehemiah begins to do is he begins to get the people of Israel and he lines them up with the spear in one hand and, and kind of like whatever they need to build the wall in the other hand. And he places them out outside the wall and they begin to kind of defend the wall and build the wall at the same time. Then it kind of shifts gears. They try, they try to take a new approach and they try to trick Nehemiah. The governors begin to send him letters and say, hey, look, if you could just put a pause on what you're doing and go ahead and meet us here we can talk about this. Four times they attempt to bring him out of Jerusalem and distract him, and Nehemiah refuses it four times. Then it moves to accusation. They can't get him out, so what do they begin to do? They begin to spread a letter to everyone and say, this guy is trying to take authority. He's trying to become king. And, and it kind of shifts from that to discrediting him. They hire on a false prophet, and they say, we want you to begin to spread the word that what Nehemiah is doing here is really he's trying to stir up rebellion. He's trying to do something that is actually going to be for the detriment of the people. And then finally, they try to intimidate him. And we kind of see this list, this list of like layers of opposition. And, and here's the thing, if we're all to take an assessment of our life, we have all at some point or another been on the receiving end of these things. Whatever that's in front of you, whether you're, you're trying to be a good husband, a good father, a good wife, a good mother, working hard at whatever God has asked you to put your hand to. Be faithful with whatever the Lord has put in front of you. And yet, anytime you've tried to do those things well in some way, shape, or form, can we keep those, those, that progression of opposition up there? One of these things has come against you. And then if we're really honest, we might have had moments in our life where we've actually participated in some of these things where we've done some of these things to others. And what we see here in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah offers an alternative way to respond to these things. And in fact, we see Nehemiah's response actually kind of points to the ultimate way we see a response to these things in the person of Jesus. And predominantly, the way he responds is prayer. He gets accused, he gets mocked, he gets threatened, he gets intimidated, attempt to be tricked, and how does he respond? Look here at Nehemiah 4, 4 through 5. He responds with calling out to his God. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in the land 
of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. If you go to Nehemiah 5, 19, he, he, he calls out to the Lord and he says, remember me, O Lord, in the favor that you have put upon me. You know what I love about that prayer? Is it's honest. And I think oftentimes we have a really, really hard time of being honest with the Lord in our tribulation, don't we? It almost feels sinful to say, God, would you take this bitterness that I have and would you turn it back on those oppressing me? But what Nehemiah is doing here is he's giving us a brief example of, of to say, hey, when evil is being done to you, the only thing to do with that evil is take it to the one who can actually do something about it. Instead of, instead of harboring it or instead of responding with your own form of vengeance, take it to the God who, as we were just singing about a second ago, is our portion, is our portion. Brothers and sisters, what we're being invited into is something that is not uncommon to the people of God if you look into the Old Testament. You go to the very next book over from Nehemiah, we go into the story of Esther. Esther, positioned by the Lord in this very unique place where she has a moment where she's faced with opposition. She either approaches the inner courts of the king and faces death, or she is obedient to the Lord and she goes in anyway to trust that whatever God has positioned her to do is what she is supposed to do. A couple songs ago, we were singing, there is another in the fire. You go back into the book of Daniel, we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like three men who are faced in this moment. We have Nebuchadnezzar who has who constructed this idol that he's asking everybody to bow down to. And they say, do as you will, but we will not bow our knee to something that is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does he do? He throws them in a furnace. And what, what happens when they look into the furnace? They find a fourth member in the furnace. There will always be opposition to what God has called us to do. If you fast forward to the New Testament, this is what we see with all of the disciples, right? I mean, we never really talk about like, hey, how did all of the disciples die? I mean, you, get, you have John who's like boiled in oil and he's exiled on Patmos. You have Peter who's crucified upside down. You have James who's thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and his head beaten in. And it's like, wait a minute, isn't following Jesus supposed to be sunshine and rainbows and whiskers on kittens? No, there will always be opposition to what God has called us to do. But that leads us to the final point here about obedience. And that's obedience requires dependence. In other words, we can't do this. We can't do what God has asked us to do apart from God giving us the ability to do it. Are you with me? Look at this here in verse 20. Chapter, chapter two, verse 20. It says, and Nehemiah answered them, those who were oppressing him. He said, the God of heaven will what? Give us success. The God of heaven will give us success. In other words, what Nehemiah is saying is that the outcome is not going to be dependent on my performance, my strength, or my talent. The outcome is the Lord's. I already know that God will bring about what he's asked me 
to do. Why? Because God's the one who asked me to do it. He's the one who holds the outcome. And I'm gonna trust that. This is why Pete Gregg, he's a pastor in, in England, he says, we do not hope for the future, we hope from the future. We don't hope for the future. We're, we're not a people who are wondering what's coming next. We're people who already know the God who holds what's next. Are you with me? I don't, have to, I don't have to be curious. Is God really going to make all things new? Will God really kind of wipe away every tear from my eye? Will, will, God, will, will God eventually conquer death, hell, and the grave in my own eyes? It's like, no, 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 my, my God's already done that. My God already holds that. He carries all of those things. And, and so what we have to realize is that when God invites us into doing something with him, he doesn't invite us to do it alone. He invites us to do it with him. This is why in John 15, Jesus looks at his followers and he said, I'm the vine and you are the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing but with me, in me, and through me. You can do all things. And here's where this matters for us right, because none of us are going back to Jerusalem to rebuild a wall, right? None of us, none of us are kind of having to worry about living in, in some real exile apart from what's taking place. But here's, here's what I do know is true and what is fundamentally true for every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. When we ask ourselves the question, what does obedience look like? And I think oftentimes we're gonna go to, okay, this is what God has asked me to do. I'm I'm supposed to start this business and lead this business well. I'm supposed to parent my children faithfully. I'm supposed to kind of respond to, to taking up this call. Yes, yes, and yes. But before we get to any of our vocation or occupation, the fundamental invitation for like what we're gonna have to be obedient to, we find in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus says, if you're gonna be my disciple, you're gonna have to deny yourself. You're gonna have to take up your cross and you're gonna have to follow me. This is the baseline of obedience for every follower of Jesus. That we're going to have to deny ourselves. In other words, it's gonna be costly. The following of Jesus means that you're gonna have to embrace the words that Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I'm going to have to give up my kingdom coming, my will being done, and embrace the hollowing of his name, his kingdom coming, and his will being done. I'm gonna have to embrace the reality and and know that my battle is not against flesh and blood. If I'm a Republican, my battle is not against a Democrat. If I'm a Democrat, my battle is not against a Republican. My, my, my battle is not against flesh and blood. My opposition is coming from a thief who, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy all that God has made precious. And though he can do nothing about who I am in Christ, he will do everything about making sure I don't experience that good news. Are you with me? It's costly. There's going to be opposition. But you know the good news? is that we never get away from Jesus being the vine and us being the branch. 
we never get away from at the end of all things, God will give us success. He is our portion. Can you bow your heads with me? As we get ready to respond here with communion and in worship, I just wanna invite you to pause. Pause and, and maybe use the imagination, the mind that God gave you to, to picture our Heavenly Father looking at you. Looking at you and, and the look that's in his eyes is not disappointment, it's not anger, it's not frustration, it's not irritation. It's compassion and love. He cares for you. He loves you. He delights in calling you his own. And with that in mind, knowing that all you need is, is a look from him for your, your identity, your worth, your value to be filled, he says these words, follow me. It's gonna cost you. It's not gonna cost you just some things. It's gonna cost you everything. You're gonna live a life that's gonna be filled with trial. That's gonna be filled with opposition. But he looks at you and he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. I got it. I'm holding you. I will sustain you. And he simply just says, depend on me. The funny thing is, we cannot be obedient to God without being dependent on him. And we cannot be dependent on him unless we are being obedient to him. So what I want you to do in, the, in this moment, as we get ready to participate in the table of the Lord, is welcome his presence to be the vine in your life. Welcome him to be the source in your life. Acknowledge that you don't have to create anything. He's the creator. He will supply everything you need. All you simply need to do as the branch is receive from him. So Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers and my sisters and I pray you would give us the strength the faith, and the humility to be obedient to you. Would you open up our hearts yet again this morning to receive from you? I pray, as we did at the very beginning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite the, the worship band to come forward. They're going to lead us in one last song. And I, I want to invite everyone in here, whether you're a member of this church, if you believe in Jesus, you're invited to come to the table with us. In your baskets are small little cups containing uh, juice and the bread. And as you get these and, and hand them to the people around you, make sure everyone that wants one has one. Would you stand with me? We're going to receive communion together. 
as we remember the words of Jesus. If you would, would you open up the top? It has uh, the bread in it. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he, in the midst of his disciples, he broke it. And he invited his disciples to, to do this in remembrance of him. When you gather, do this in remembrance of him. And this is a mystery of Christ's body broken for us. If you have the bread, would you, would you break it in your fingers and consider that Christ's body was broken for you on the cross? God himself became a human and he died for us. And so we remember Christ. We thank him that he said he was the bread of life and we receive this together as a congregation in hope that our sins are forgiven, that we're with him. So let's receive together. We also take the cup. Jesus lifted this cup. He said, this is a cup of a new covenant. He said, my blood is shed for you. When you gather together, this is the climax of this service. This is the climax of the week, the climax of my week for sure. As I, as I look at all of you and receive Christ's blood for us, we receive his forgiveness, the sacrament of, of, of Jesus, and we remember his death for us. Let's thank the Lord for it. Lord, we thank you for the bread, and now we thank you for the cup that we can receive this and drink it and know that, Lord, we're abiding in you. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Amen. Let's receive together. Let's sing this last song together and remember that we abide in Christ.
we leave here today as individuals saying, teach us to abide. As a church, Lord, we say, teach us to abide. Lord, as a nation, on this day, 9-11, Lord, we, we remember and we, we say, Lord, would you teach us to abide? Would you start with us, individuals and families and this church? May we go from these doors abiding in you, saying, Lord, you are our portion. We go in obedience to you. Lord, use us as your instruments. Use us as your hope carriers, bringing hope into this world that so desperately needs it. We say, Lord, use us. We're your servants. We leave here with joy in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's people said, amen. Well, as you go from here, we're going to have a prayer team. I'll be down here. A couple people are coming to pray with you or for you, especially if earlier in, your, in the service, if you raised your hand, come forward. I, I would love to hear more about that, and we will pray over you and join with you in prayer. If you're new or newish, or if you've never filled out a, a visitor card at New Life Manitou, maybe you visit another congregation uh, of New Life Church, we have visitor cards in the back. The, the friendliest person in our church, Kelly, is back there. She will greet you, give you a gift. And we have an announcement for you. Uh, we really love potlucks. Anybody love potlucks? New Life Manager, we do potlucks. It's a thing in our church. And so in a couple weeks, on the 25th of September, New Life Manitou is doing a potluck. Think about your last name, if you can remember what your last name is, and, and figure it out on the chart if you're going to bring a side or a dessert. And, and by the way, if you just show up that morning or if you bring people that didn't bring a side or a dessert, uh, we will not kick them out. We will welcome them. We have, we'll have plenty of food. Uh, we talked about having burgers and hot dogs. And then Jerry, our chef, who's on our volunteer team, a legitimate chef, was like, well, we'll do something better than that too. So it'll be a great potluck. That's in two Sundays from today, not next week, but the week after that. Those are your announcements. Let me pray a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and upon your life. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.